You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Well, welcome friends. If I haven't met you before, my name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here. And as always, I'm excited to share the word with you. I'm excited to get into this topic of renewal. But this time, I'm, I'm extra excited. I say it every single time I get up here, I'm excited, but I'm extra excited. The last couple of months, four, five, six months, I've spent my, my head has just been in books about revival and thinking about revival and, and just discussing and trying to wrestle with this topic of renewal. And I feel like God has blessed me. And so I, I feel like God has tilled the soils of my heart. And so I'm, I'm just coming to you excited to share what God has shared with me. This morning, Uh, if you were here last week, you heard Jono launch us off talking about the history of renewal, how God has acted at times that seem to be at their darkest. In times of great spiritual darkness, God has moved, that he has brought about renewal and revival through a small group of people in both the Old Testament and in history. Through repentance and prayer and fasting, God has done incredible things things. And as we look forward, we're going to look at how can we prepare ourselves? How can we position ourselves to be renewed by God? Because there are important questions that we have to ask ourselves. And one of the ones is what Jonah said this morning. Why isn't revival here now? That's something that we have to contend with as we come to this topic. Why, why isn't revival in our midst? Why aren't thousands of people coming to faith in Melbourne right now? And there's an element that, you know, revival is of the Lord. So even if we're excited and we're praying, we're fasting, we don't control the outcome. This is not a tap that we turn on and go, well, I prayed and I fasted. Come to faith, people. Come on. What's going on? That's not, not how it works. Revival is of the Lord. But I think as we... As we look at history, as we look at the Bible, we'll see patterns that aren't taking place in our churches across Melbourne. There are blockages that are hiding the presence of the Lord from our midst, and that's what I want to get into this morning. So let me pray for us before we get in. God, I pray that you would speak powerfully through your word to us this morning. Let me be your messenger But let our eyes be focused solely on you. God, I pray you do a mighty work in us this morning. That we would say, God, I want you and nothing else. Let everything else fade away. But let me have you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said in one big loud voice, Amen. Amen. All right, well, we have this story about Isaac in Genesis, and you might have been reading along and going, well, I don't, I don't really quite understand what this has to do with renewal or revival. It seems like a fairly stock standard Old Testament story. Someone's got kicked out. They have to find a new place to live. But I think there are profound parallels between the story of Isaac and the situations that we face ourselves in. The context is that Abraham, the great father of the faith, Isaac's father, has died in Genesis 25, the last chapter before this one. And Isaac has settled in the land of the Philistines. He settled in Gerar with um, Abimelech. And God has blessed him. 
and he's grown, his flock, his, his money and wealth and riches has increased. And he is kicked out because the king is envious of his position. He says, you, you are too powerful for us. You must leave lest you destroy us. So Isaac must find a new place to live. So he settles in the valley of Gerar. And he has an urgent need when he gets there. Because if you move with you know, hundreds of sheep and hundreds of, of people, you're going to need to find a couple of things. Now, I, I, even as I think about that, right? just moving with, with hundreds of people and sheep, like it sounds like an incredible endeavor. Sarah and I went on holidays, right? on school holidays. I don't know, how long was it? Two weeks? I looked into my bag. I was like, oh, that's where all my socks are. Just haven't unpacked, right? That thought of moving is just incredible to me. But Isaac has to settle himself, and he needs to find something. He needs to find water. He's not walking around in the Valley of Gerar going, I need to find a great place for an Instagram photo, hashtag desert life. He's not walking around trying to build this great structure that reveals his wealth and his riches. He's simply going, I need to find water. If I don't find water, everyone's going to die. And we're much in the same position. In the same way that Isaac needed to find the core essentials to life. If you don't have water, it doesn't matter how much wealth or riches or sheep you have, you die. The church needs to return to the core essentials. We have a need to go back to the the very center of our faith. Now, when revival and renewal comes, it's not about methods. It's not about systems or processes. It's not about making slight adjustments. It's not even about having louder worship. It is about a people returning to the presence of God at the very center of their lives. It is people going, I want Jesus and nothing else. It doesn't matter how the worship sounds. It doesn't matter how, how the systems work. I just want Jesus, so bring me Jesus. If we don't have the presence of God at the center of all we do, the church will perish in the exact same way that if Isaac does not find water, everyone around him will die. Because as I look around at Red Door, it would be very easy for us to be content with what we have. Lots of churches would love to have what we have. They would love to have solid teaching from the Scriptures. They would love to have a vibrant band. They would love to have solid community and small groups. They would love to have the youth group we have or the kids' ministry we have or the mainly music that we have. But I look around that and go, great, it's solid, but I, I want revival. I want more than what we have here. I look out at the western suburbs, I want to see thousands of people coming to faith. There are so few churches in the west of Melbourne. Wyndham Vale, where Werribee is, has more people than Geelong. And it only has one or two Anglican churches there. I want more. I want to see the captives being set free. I want to see people coming to faith. I want to see the dead coming to life. I want to see people healed. I'm not content with us just being solid. We need revival as much as any other church does. So what does Isaac do as he looks for the core essentials? Well, in verse 18, he says this. 
Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham and that the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. Isaac went back to where he knew water could be found. Isaac returned to the places that his father Abraham had dug up because he knew that's where water is going to be. And that's what we heard last week from Jono, is that all throughout history that God has moved at spectacular moments when it seems like the spiritual darkness is going to overcome the church, when it seems like everything has gone to hell, God moves. But what you start to notice in all the great spiritual awakenings, in, um, in, in like the Welsh revival or the Scottish revival, in the great reformation or the great awakenings, you see a return to the things that the church has done at the beginning. You see a return to the things that the church has has done when God has moved. There is a return. He has returned. We see this in the scriptures. In 2 Chronicles, it says this. If I shut the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people... And my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their evil ways, and I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. There is a return. If they come back to me, if they humble themselves, if they pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. And in Revelation, when Jesus is confronting the church in Ephesus that has all these great works, but they don't love God, he says this to them, remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Go back to what was happening at the beginning. You need to return. Isaac returned, and likewise, we need to learn the lessons of history. What has happened in these great spiritual revivals? So what did Isaac do? We had to prepare the ground. He, had, he went to these wells of life-giving water and found that they'd been blocked up. The Philistines were envious of Isaac and all his wealth and all his sheep. And so they went to all the wells that they knew he would need and he blocked them all up. Isaac went to the wells and he could not retrieve the water. The water was not coming out. Before they could get the water for the flocks, for the people, the rubble and the refuse and the rubbish must be removed from the well. And in every great spiritual revival, there is going to be rubble and refuse and rubbish that has been poured onto the life-giving message of Jesus that must be removed. There are things that get in the way of us valuing and treasuring Jesus that have to be removed from our lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British theologian and pastor, put it like this. The concealing and neglect of certain vital truths has always been the chief characteristic of the life of the church in every period of deadness and of declension, as in decline. In every period of great spiritual darkness, vital life-giving truth from Jesus has been concealed and neglected. And it makes me think of a missionary called Leslie Newbigin. 
You might have heard of him before. He's uh, quite a famous author from Britain. He left Britain when he was about in his late 20s and he went to India for 40 years. And in India, he was a missionary, he was a pastor, and he was a bishop, which is probably why he's wearing those funny robes, right? So he, he did a, a lot of incredible things. But when he was around 70 years old, after 40 years plowing the ground, preaching the gospel, building the church, encouraging the saints in India, he returned to England and was shocked. Because what he found was that England was in a far more perilous state of spiritual deadness than India was. He was flummoxed. The same churches that had sent him as a missionary now needed him to return as a missionary. He writes this in the book Unfinished Agenda. Ministry in England is much harder than anything I met in India. There is a cold contempt for the gospel, which is hard to face in opposition. England is a pagan society, and the development of a truly missionary encounter with this very tough form of paganism is the greatest intellectual and practical task facing the church. He shares stories of just door knocking and trying to meet people and being thrown out of houses from the English for being received by all the migrants. Something had changed. And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. What had changed in 40 years in England to go from a missionary sending force, a missionary supporting force, to being this spiritually dead place only 40 years later? And what it seems like has happened is that an alternate vision, a secular vision for life, had replaced a Christian vision for life at the heart of England. So much so that even those in the church started agreeing with their unbelieving neighbours that religion was private, that it wasn't that powerful, and that it could be kept just, just for us. It doesn't need to be shared. Something had been replaced. This is the world that we live in now. We live in a world of disbelief and deconstruction. Where even believing in believing is seen as silly. Having a, a faith is seen as ridiculous. I talk to my friends about the, the, the things that I believe about, you know, core central truths like the resurrection from the dead or the divinity of Jesus, or you know, our culture is very attuned to traditional sexual ethics. Um, like I talk to my friends, and they, they think it's ridiculous that I believe it. It doesn't make sense for them at all. Our world has replaced a Christian vision. But to be honest with you, I'm actually not that concerned about what my friends believe about what I believe. I don't, I'm not really concerned that they think that, I, that the resurrection of the dead is silly. I'm not concerned that they think that. But I'm very concerned that the church has been captured by what Colossians calls the false philosophies of the age, that what is going on out there is also happening in here. Because as I look at our churches in Australia, as I look at a church that is losing influence, as I look at a church that is losing ground, as I look at a church that seems to be losing spiritual authority, I watch how Christians react to that news. 
And what do I see but division, anger, disunity, frustration, anxiety? I watch increasingly us getting addicted to the digital nervous system and spending all of our time on social media. I watch withdrawal. I, I think to myself, where's the, where's the prayer? Where is, our, where is our fasting? Where is our repentance? Where is our increased dependence upon the Lord? Where is our increased dependence on our brothers and sisters? Where is our godliness? I feel like we have an incredible opportunity for gospel advancement and for revival and renewal in our culture, and we're missing it for the trees. If only, like Isaac, we would return to the things of the past. If we would learn the lessons of history from the New Testament, from the great revivals throughout history, from the Melbourne Revival and the Scottish Revival and the Welsh Revival and the Great Awakenings. If only we would learn their lessons, I feel like we would see the incredible opportunity before us for prayer and for fasting and for repentance and for God to move. And instead we spend our time squabbling about things like politics or whatever. And I ask myself the question, have we been captured? Does this describe us? Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. Does that describe us? Is that the cause of our unchristlike responses to things that, that have happened all throughout history? Dallas Willard, in his great book, which I encourage everyone to go home and buy, um, is, is called Renovation of the Heart. He says this, which I think provides an incredible insight into what might be happening. Ideas and images are a primary stronghold of evil in the human self and society. They determine how we take the things and events of ordinary life. They control the meanings we assign to what we deal with, and they can even blind us to what lies plainly before us. This is seen over and over again in biblical history and in Christian history and in human life generally. He goes on. As I read this, it killed me this week. Ideas and images are accordingly the primary focus of Satan's efforts to defeat God's purposes with and for humankind. When we are subject to his chosen ideas, he can take a nap or go on a holiday. Therefore, when he undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. And it was with the idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. Satan will not rock up your door and say, Hi, I'm Mr. Satan. Would you like to go on a walk with me? Instead, he will plant ideas and images that will cause us to be un undermine our trust in God. Ideas matter. What we believe matters. They blind us. They shape how we view the everyday realities of life. And I wonder if there are a couple of ideas that have been so firmly planted in our minds that are at the heart of why we're not seeing revival. And that's what I want to ask this morning. Before revival occurs, before renewal occurs, 
We need to remove some of these false ideas that fall around in our brain. There must be some tilling of the soil before revival and renewal comes. Some the rubble and the refuse and the rubbish that conceals these vital truths must be removed. And what Leslie Newbegin and others like Charles Taylor and James K. Smith and Mark Sayers have pointed out is that at the core of our culture at the moment is that we are living in something called a secular age. Secular can have lots of different meanings, and not all of them are particularly negative. Right? Secular just means any mundane endeavor, something that's not particularly spiritual. And we, we sort of understand this. Right? Not everything we do is incredibly spiritual. Like when you're taking a shower, like it's probably not a spiritual experience for you. Unless, I don't know, like maybe you're like in the shower and you start praying, like, God, I pray for the head of Jesus, and God, I pray for the arms, and I pray for the seats. Uh, I don't know, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's a spiritual experience for you. I don't know, not me, right? That's not how I take my showers. But, but what, what's happened. What's happened, as I find my place, my thing has fallen out. No, it's not. It just was hiding. What has happened is that in the Enlightenment, a lot of this, this idea that there are mundane endeavors that are, that are spiritually, like not, like it's just not spiritual, gets advanced very quickly. People like Edward Gibbons, who's, a, who's a, a thinker of the Enlightenment, put forward this idea that there was a, a pristine society that existed before Christian culture, before Christianity. That's what we need to return to. In the same way that we look at the early church as this example of what life and health and living looks like, Enlightenment thinkers, secular thinkers start going, there existed a time before Christianity was around, that was what we need to return to. So this starts being pushed forward and pushed forward and pushed forward until Christianity actually becomes the heresy that causes the decline of the world around us. Christianity is the virus that needs to be removed from our system for us to return to health and flourishing. N.T. Wright puts it like this in his book, Spiritual and Religious. Within much enlightenment thought, God is a nuisance. He keeps on interfering. And people who are presuming to speak for God are simply clinging to power for themselves, power which they are using to feather their own nests. So God is initially kicked upstairs and allowed a place, if at all, as an absentee landlord. He may have made the world and may still take a passing interest in it, but he doesn't do much about it and we have to get on and fend for ourselves as best we can. But once you make God an absentee landlord, you are halfway to making him an absentee. The atheism of Marx and Freud, of Voltaire and John Lennon, who asked us in one of his songs to imagine there was, there was no heaven, saying it would be easy if we tried, is a logical end product of the absentee landlord theology. Many in the church went along with this idea quite happily, since it allowed them to get on quietly with a privately or semi-private religion with no outside interference. But a church that has rested content with this idea compromises itself and has only itself to blame if the world around it regards it as more and more irrelevant. 
there is an idea at the very heart of our culture that is being pushed forward from the Enlightenment that is very simple and yet very powerful. It's this. Human flourishing can be achieved without the presence of God. You don't need God in order to have a happy and fulfilling life. Progress can be accomplished without presence. I've got that on the next slide. This idea is everywhere. And this idea, I think, is at the heart of why we don't see revival in our age. This idea is at the heart of what the false philosophies might be capturing and captivating us in the church. The idea that we can progress without the presence of God. So let's put this idea under the microscope and take a look. Steven Pinker is an atheist and intellectual who wrote a book called Enlightenment Now, all about how the Enlightenment has fueled the progress of society. And he lists in like endless, endless, endless detail with statistics and stories about all the ways that society is progressing. And to be honest, it's, it's actually incredible. So he, he writes that when it comes to life expectancy and child mortality and maternal mortality and food availability and poverty and deforestation and war and violence and homicide and racism and sexism and hate crimes and violence towards women and even the price of light, we can statistically show that the world as a whole is getting better. There is verifiable research and statistics that say this, these are the ways that we are progressing. We are doing better overall. And they point to this as evidence that we don't need God. Look at all the progression that we're having. But the problem is that our culture is increasingly haunted by God. Even in the midst of all of this progress, something is not quite right. We've seen in the last couple of years a return to tribalism, an increased just, just division between people who, who used to talk to each other. The right and the left are a great example of this. To- politics has become more and more toxic. The toxic sort of behaviors of humanity have become incredibly resilient. Right? Hatred, bigotry, violence, selfishness, they seem resilient. They're not going up or going down. And when we look to other things, the rise of anxiety and mental health problems, epic rates of loneliness and social disconnection, Britain has just come up with a new position in their cabinet, the Minister for Loneliness. It's never existed before. Widespread online bullying, addiction to drugs and food and sex... The West has failed to deliver on her promises. Even in the midst of all of this progress, there's something missing. There's something not quite right here. And when when the presence of God is removed as the engine of history, as the engine of progress, all these other pretenders to the throne start trying to take her place or his place. right? And so that's what we've seen. Politics... Fame, wealth, sex, money, power, education have all tried to take the place of the presence of God at the center of progress. 
Stephen Pinker again comments in his book Enlightenment Now on how politics has become the new religion. Left-wing and right-wing politics have themselves become secular religions, providing people with a community of like-minded brothers and sisters, a catechism of sacred beliefs, a well-populated demonology, and a beatic confidence in the righteousness of their cause. In the absence of the presence of God, religion has become uh, politics has become our religion. And in this church, like I, I know in our church that we have a widespread difference of opinions when it comes to politics. We have people from the left, from the right, everyone in between, people who are really excited about politics and people who hope that if we just ignore it long enough, they might go away. Right? We have everything in between. But what we all fail to notice is that politics, when it comes down to it, is all about the same thing. Whether you're on the left and you're trying to seek freedom through deconstructing social norms like family and sex and gender and a whole bunch of different stuff, what you really want is progress without presence. If you're on the right and you want expansion of individual freedoms and and freedom from the government, you're still about progress without presence. Whether you're on the left or the right or in the center, it's all about progress without the presence of God. The presence of God is not at the center of these systems. And so we ask ourselves, why has politics become harsher in the last couple of years? Why has politics become more divisive in the last couple of years? Why has politics become meaner in the last couple of years? Well, it's actually very simple. If the presence of God isn't at the center of what we do, whatever replaces it becomes our idol. If if politics is the new religion, it must uphold everything that God was intended to uphold. It must follow through on all of her promises. And when she doesn't, we despair. Something Jono says all the time, that whatever we idolize, we end up demonizing. And if we idolize politics, in the end, we will demonize her. All this is to say that the secular life script, the secular vision, the progress can be had without the presence of God is very, very fragile. And we see this. Even in the midst of progression, there's this haunting sense that things aren't what they're meant to be, that they're not, it's not quite right. And I think, and I think biblical Scripture and history would show it's because there can never be progress without God being at the very center of it. We see this in Colossians, this great chapter about the centrality of Jesus and his power and his worth and his might and his majesty. And it says this in in 16 and 17. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And then the next verse, he is before all things and by him all things hold together. That phrase, all things hold together, comes from a Greek word called synhestikon, which is a verb indicating, the, it's where we get out the, the English word system from. Jesus is the system in which all things hold together. And if Jesus isn't at the center of the system, the system falls apart. He is the one that holds everything together. If the presence of God, if Jesus isn't at the center of our life systems, they will fall apart and break because they were never intended to be like that. 
Jesus must be at the center of everything we do. We get this beautiful picture of this in Psalm chapter 1. I can get this on the screen. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Can we just go back one slide? This is a picture of a person who has the presence of God at the very center of their life. They are like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not What we see is that when the presence of God is at the center of the system, healing comes. Health comes into the system. You notice that it's a tree planted by a river. It doesn't depend upon the the vague notion. It doesn't have to wait for the rain to come, the clouds to come. It's by the river. It's constantly fed. God's presence is feeding the tree. It's unwavering, constant, consistent. And trust him. The system works. This is what we're missing. I look at that and go, that's what I want. That is a person who, by meditating on God's ways and words, is part of a system which God is at the center and it works. Our culture would tell us that progress could be had without presence. But what we see again and again is that it does not work. When Adam and Eve try to progress without the presence of God, it falls apart. When Abraham tries to progress forward without the presence of God, it falls apart. When David tries to progress forward without the presence of God, it falls apart. When Israel tries to move forward without the presence of God, it falls apart. When the New Testament churches try to move forward without the presence of God, they fall apart. And when we try to move forward without the presence of God, it will fall apart. It is Jesus at the center or everything fails. All these other things will not deliver on their promises. Politics will not deliver on her promises. Education will not deliver on her promises. Sex will not deliver on her promises. Fame will not deliver on her promises. Money will not deliver on her promises. Wealth will not deliver on her promises. All these things that we place at the center of our lives that drive us as the engine of progress will not deliver and therefore will destroy us. They are not what God has intended. And so here is the brutal question that we must ask of ourselves if revival is to come. Does this describe me? Do I meditate upon the Lord day and night? Is my life one where God is at the very center of everything? Have I tried to progress without the presence of the Lord? Don't just pass past those questions. They are vital. 
does this describe me? This, this month marks about two years since Sarah finished chemotherapy, which is um, a great blessing and something that we've celebrated. But one of the, the things that I've had to wrestle with over the years is that in the two years since chemotherapy has ended, Sarah has now been healed and is doing great and baby is coming and she's a picture of health in many ways and yet I actually still feel quite broken. And it's manifested itself in a lot of different ways, uh, anxiety and profound sadness and withdrawing from relationships. But one of the things that God has revealed to me over the last year especially is that the brokenness has come in part because I tried to progress without the presence of God. That in significant ways, I was building my life on my own skills and talents rather than on being with Jesus. I was content to move forward without spiritual hunger. I was content to move forward without prayer and fasting. I was content to move forward without my life being centered around Jesus, with other things playing just incredible importance. I feel like God has broken me in light of that. What cancer has done has shine a light on all the things that I idolize that aren't Jesus and said, this will not do. What cancer has done is shine a light on all the ways that I have tried to progress in my life without the presence of God. And God loves me far too much to let that, let that continue. And you might think this is a sad way to end a series on revival, that maybe we should be happy and joyful and, yeah, look what God can do. But I don't, I don't see it that way. Because I, I really desire revival. I read the books and I go, I want that. But before revival happens out there, revival has to happen here. Before revival occurs in our culture, revival has to start in me. This year has been more evidence that God, regardless of sorrow, of difficulty, of ease, loves me far too much to allow me to move forward without his presence. He wants far more for me than that. He wants far more than failing systems. He wants far more than toxic politics. He wants far more than what the world promises. He wants us for himself, and he wants himself for us. And so I invite you to consider the question that Charles Finney asked of himself. He wrote this, or said this rather. Charles Finney was asked where revival begins, and he answered, I draw a circle around myself and make sure everything in that circle is right with God. Are you right with the Lord? Do you feel like false philosophies have captured your heart? Have you tried to progress forward without the presence of God? Is there other things at the center of your life that need to be replaced by God for revival to occur there? What are the ways that rubble and refuse need to be removed from the wells of my own life? Because friends, the beginning, the middle, the end of revival is all about the presence of God. If we do not have it, revival will not come. God will not allow us to progress forward without his presence. So the question we have to ask ourselves, what does it look like for me to value God's presence? 
value God above everything and anything else. So I'm going to pray right now. And I encourage you to pray self, like with self-examination. Go, does this describe me? It might be that you need to repent and confess this morning. And say, God, that doesn't describe me. It hasn't described me. But God, start a revival in me. Build in me a hunger for your presence that is above anything else. Let us pray. God, we come before you this morning as a people who desperately desire you, who needs you. We don't need more information. We don't need more knowledge or systems or programs or methods. We need you. So God, start a hunger in our hearts that will not be satisfied by what all the world has to offer. Start a fire in our hearts that says, I want Jesus, I want God, and I will not be content until I have relationship with you, until I am close to you, until I draw near to you. God, convict us of this. Place a heavy burden upon our hearts until we are close with you. Cause us to fall out of love with all the world has to offer. God, draw us near to you again. We want revival, but let revival start in us first. Let us never progress forward without your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to sing, but I encourage you if, you, if, if God has laid something on your heart this morning, come and pray with us. Like we, we need to pray, we need to confess, we need to repent. Don't let this moment pass. Feel free to sing and stand, but a couple of us will be over here ready for prayer.